Welcome to another episode of Thoughts of a Techno Wizard. Uh, it is what time is it? Sheesh, 9:55 a.m. And uh, I woke up fairly early, but I was reading this amazing paper, research paper that just came out. Well, technically, it came out last year, but I just now saw it <laughs> um, about how interbrain connections are real meaning they can they were able to see in in like through EEGs and stuff like that they were actually able to see interbrain synchronization so when people were collaborating on tasks on multiple different tasks they were able to see a synchronization of the oscillation patterns in their brains meaning Hold up, it's gonna be very loud. Let me one second, let me pass all this. Okay. This is what happens when you start walking too late in the morning. So active. But anyways, um so it turns out in your brain you have oscillation patterns where different parts of your brain are shooting off signals to the other parts of your brain. And that is basically it's a simplified version of it, but that, as I understand it, that's what allows you to um, think and have you know to have thoughts and to do activities and all this other stuff right and so they're able to study they're able to observe these observations I mean these oscillations <laughs> um, through EEG and a number of other you know uh, big big computers <laughs> right um, so what they were able to see was that when you look at the EEG patterns and other you know the, of these types of patterns between people working on tasks together, they can actually see these oscillations synchronize between the different brains, between people's different brains. And they can see patterns of these, these synchronizations where the more collaborative the experience, the more synchronized their brain is. And the it's a difference between if you're working together versus if you're competing if you're competing you don't see that synchronization versus if you're um, also if you're working on the same task but like if you you're both working on the exact same task task but not necessarily working together that's also does not allow you to synchronize so even if you're you know doing the same thing together in the same room that doesn't mean you're going to synchronize it only happens when you collaborate on experiences and stuff like that and i was just wow there's so much there's a, there's a lot more into it i'll link this study in my in my descriptions you can read it. it's very long <laughs> and there's a lot you know going into it but that's basically the gist of it and um, that's the the most i can understand at this moment <laughs> to really dive into it to really understand more but um that is really fascinating it's super interesting so some of those you know scientists are, are saying that this is a huge kind of step in the in the direction of the idea of consciousness being extended beyond just you know our internal um, individualized minds because uh, it turns out there's a person by the name of Clark and in 2009 or so that said um, something along the lines of it's highly unlikely that um, 
that uh, consciousness extends beyond the brain because of, you know, all this other stuff. <laughs> Big words that I don't really understand. It's something about temporal alignment or something. I don't know. But <laughs> this study kind of refutes that, kind of shows you that, hey, there is interbrain connection. Um, it's not just temporal. I mean, it's not causal, meaning it, it, you didn't just see one brain or see one person doing something and then you try to copy them and then you, you got synchronized. It's, there's something going on there that doesn't, that's not fully explained by just causal relationship, by just seeing somebody move or, you know, looking at their micro interactions or, or their facial uh, recognitions or something like that. Like they, they were able to see these, these collaborations even when the, the resources themselves were doing the movements. So they did one study where um, when they was playing a card game, you know, something like, I don't know what card game, probably spades or something. <laughs> but they had four people and, um, you know, two teams. So just like in spades, kind of you kind of put, I don't, I don't know what card, what card game it was, but I, I'm just using spades as an example here. But you can, um, it seemed like they were putting down the cards, right? And of course, they had, as a team, you had to work together to see, you know, how you're going to, how you're going to win. And instead of the, the, the people, you know, the, the participants putting on the cards themselves and therefore, you know, kind of communicating through uh, body signals or whatever, it was the researchers. They would tell the researchers what cards to put down for them. So that, that way kind of eliminated, you know, the, the cross-contamination of body, of eye signal, things like that. At least that's how I'm, I'm thinking about it. I might, I might have that wrong. But it seems like that's, that's what they were doing there. And it seemed that even in that situation, you had this um, interbrain connection, this interbrain synchronization. Um, you also had they also studied extensively with pilots, so they had a, they had a, they had a simulation, um, where a realistic kind of cockpit scenario where they're going through the entire um, process of of you know driving a plane together or flying a plane together, and it turns out in the beginning and the end during the landing and takeoff. During the most cooperative times were the only times in which that synchronization happened. Meaning, they would synchronize when they had to work together to take off. And then when they got into cruise control and they were just doing each their own individual tasks, that synchronization ended. And then when they had to, you know, work together again to land a plane, that synchronization happened again. So it's, it's, it's based, really is based on tasks, based on um, collaboration. They even saw, they even did a study where where they were told where the participants were told whether or not they were working with a human or a computer. So <laughs> you could kind of guess what's going to happen here. But even um, when they when when they were told that they were working with the computer, that synchronization did not happen, right? And even when there was another human there, right, actually working with them, but they were told that they were working with the computer. That synchronization did not happen. So clearly, there has to be some sort of belief system in place. There has to be some sort of realization that you are collaborating with somebody, right? With some another human in order for that to happen. What that means exactly, I don't know. But that's just extremely fascinating to me. I'm just, I'm just like, oh gosh, this is, this is exciting, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, I was, I was reading, I was reading that all morning, and uh, that got me really, really really inspired i went ahead and tweeted them i was like hey did y'all do any studies as to whether or not this synchronization happens remotely 
Like, what if you're collaborating with somebody, you know, over uh, over the airways, you know, through the computer or on a phone or something like that? Like, is there a connection? Does that synchronization happen then? I'm not sure. Probably not. But I would be I would be interested to see that research because that would tell us if if distance matters. That would be a huge, huge thing, right? Um, because they pointed out that it wasn't the environment, right? It wasn't the the context of the environment that that created the synchronization. Like you would think, just being in a collaborative environment, like knowing that you're going to be working with people, you know, in a space would would do that. But they did studies in which showed that it wasn't necessarily the environment that did it. You know, it was just knowing that you're collaborating with somebody else. So, what I if 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 the synchronization happens remotely, then that that is a huge thing. I I don't know where that goes, but if even if it's not right, and the most likely in the more likely case that you don't see that synchronization remotely, then that also explains a lot as to why you know remote working and remote school is not necessarily as fulfilling over long periods of time, long periods of time, and I think that would be really important to know because as we're pushing more towards um remote work and remote learning and as and i'm saying saying it's me as a person who enjoys that like i enjoy working remotely and working you know learning remotely like yeah it's cool to be you know together with other people but i'm usually more efficient when i have when i could just work on my own um and and i find it really cool that you can work with people around the world but however there is something about working together right being with somebody in the same space and having that collaboration so if we discover that the only way to get that synchronization is to be physically close to each other then we need to figure out you know how to how to have more of that and it's not just going back to the office or going back to school right because again it showed that just because you're working to in the same place doesn't ne- does not necessarily mean that you're synchronized you actually have to be collaborating on the same task, right? So a big complaint that a lot of people have when working at the office or going to school is that you're not necessarily collaborating, right? It's not actual group work. A lot of times you're just doing the same task simultaneously or, you know, um, even competing with each other, right? And we have this huge <laughs> thing in America and, and much of the Western world that competition is what drives innovation and and uh and you know the m- much of the progress in our times but a collaboration is actually can be proven to be more powerful to have that synchronization and i think that shows you that we need to have more collaborative workplaces rather than competitive right and that shows you that when we are the only reason why you would have to work you know, in the office is not necessarily just in general, but specifically for um, specifically for collaborative tasks. So just working at the office or just going to school is not going to, you know, make you give you that fulfilling synchronized feeling. You actually have to be collaborating together. And that means we need to, you know, give people projects in which they are actually collaborating together, not just, you know, uh, acting like like assembly line workers that's not gonna that's not the same thing so yeah it's just extremely interesting to me and um they discovered a few more other stuff i think they also discovered that you see a similar synchronization with um 
with people who are close to each other, right? Your loved ones, for instance. They had couples where they were actually able to see that synchronization when they were like, I, um, you know, making love eyes at each other. Just, they call it positive affectations, which I guess are probably like cuddling or something. I don't know. <laughs> um, or positive affects, whatever. So, again, that shows you that there's something powerful going on there, right? Clearly. I mean, clearly we know this, but we don't know this, right? This is, the, this is why science is so, so important. It's because it shows you how it works and, and, and maybe even why it works to an extent in, in which it's showing you the mechanisms behind it. And um, to me, I know some people that kind of takes away the magic. But to me, that, that brings more magic into the, into the equation because it shows you like the magic system going on there. Like for me, I, I never really enjoyed soft magic systems. That's why I call myself a techno wizard. You know, I, I enjoy the hard magic systems. I like to study the arcane and see how it works and <laughs> and things like that. I like to treat magic like science and, and science like magic and vice versa because it to me it really is it really is the same thing. The only difference is that magic is hard to explain, <laughs> um, but allows you to do really amazing things with just like your willpower and things like that. And to me, science when you apply it right, technology is applied science. So it's basically like doing the magic <laughs> of science. Um, so whenever I, I learn stuff like this, I'm just like, that's, that's, the, that's the magic, right? That's the, the recipes for the magic uh, things that you can do. And the technologies that you create based off of the scientific studies, that's the actual magic spells and, and systems and, and uh, things that you, that you create. It's, it's just amazing. It's amazing. Whew. So yeah, I, I'm super excited about that. I'm gonna look more into it, following these uh, researchers on on Twitter. Gonna see if I can find more research from them. Definitely gonna put that in the next newsletter coming up. But man, that's that's amazing. Um, my mind is just blown right now. <laughs> but let me go ahead and recap my weekend and uh, call it a day. All right, so um, working on my newsletter, of course, over the weekend. I've been meaning to try and do it on like a daily basis, like every every probably like a third thirty minutes to an hour a day. I would add to my newsletter, but um, that hasn't been happening. <laughs> so I ended up having to do most of it over the weekend, and um, I ended up putting so much about urban planning and nonprofits that I just made that its own newsletter and I'm going to post another one probably today or tomorrow with everything else I've been learning and uh, thinking about. So uh, that's interesting. <laughs> but um, I was going ham in that, in that newsletter with the uh, urban planning stuff because I'm like, that's huge. Like if we can really apply that to the world, you know, to the world, to our individual communities, that will make a huge step in, in actually making a positive difference in our everyday lives, you know, just creating communities in which are more walkable, you know, bringing back your local um, shops and everything like that. And then the idea posted in there is that we need to kind of bring back local shops, but for technology, right? Like imagine having local technology mom and pop shops or local technology community centers and things like that. So whereas before you had local smiths and 
um, textile folks, uh, um, artisans and whatnot, like cobblers and all that stuff like that. What if, because we're in the 21st century, you have local engineers, local designers, local marketers, right? So you can walk to the corner store or walk to the, you know, corner of your neighborhood or whatever. You can work with somebody who can build a website for you or can help you, you know, build out a game, who can help you, you know, build out whatever else, uh, a part of the metaverse, you know, virtual world. Imagine having a metaverse that you can go online, right, on your computer or your phone, and you can actually see a, a virtual world, a virtual shop, like a whole virtual street overlaid on your current street. And the, the, the reason you would have that is because now you can maintain kind of like e-commerce stores, but locally, like literally locally. Like a huge problem as to why local stores are so difficult today is because it's hard to find them, right? Most people, when they get in your car, you're not necessarily looking for a local store. You're just going to a specific destination, usually downtown or, you know, at some city center or something like that, right? Because of these zoning laws, you have huge residential areas and huge commercial districts. And so people are just going straight to the commercial district rather than stopping and, you know, seeing what's on the way or just walking around and discovering places, so what if you bring that back through a, through a metaverse type of thing where you can see the virtual storefront through your phone or headset or computer and you can just kind of walk there like you would in uh, 100, 200 years ago. And then you buy something from there and it gets um, 3D printed at your house or drone delivered to your house or something like that. It, it would be so cool. And it would encourage people like your grandparents could have a virtual store <laughs> and they, they would have something to do you know they would have income coming in other than freaking uh social security things like that when a when a, a young person wants to get their first job they don't need their, their they don't need a car anymore to get that first job they could just walk down the street or go online and work at that virtual store and because it's not just you know kind of old jobs like craft craft type stuff I, I don't I think there is some definitely some value in those types of jobs don't get me wrong like it would be beneficial if we can have more handcrafted um, materials but it's also reality that many people don't necessarily want to do those jobs and that software is eating the world right and so you need designers you need engineers you need you know marketers and things like that but what if instead of all these people only working for big tech organizations you can work for local organizations and I don't mean local as in you know they generally work in your city <laughs> I mean they literally work in your neighborhood in your neighborhood and it could be and it could still be a good job right here's the thing because we live in this age of interconnected interconnectedness we can have these local jobs and organizations but they get they still get paid very well because you're servicing not just your local community, but anybody else around the world who might be interested in what your local community does. All right? Here's the thing that people don't understand with diversity. Is that when you have more diverse communities and organizations and things like that, you have more diverse products. Right? You have unique cultures. You have unique things that can only be found with these unique communities. And in the age of the internet, 
especially in the internet that's actually interconnected not just a you know a series of isolated things that you can only really access through a search engine but actually interconnected like a city like where you can drive or walk you know to a, a, a place in the virtual world that you can more easily discover these unique cultures these unique products from these unique diverse communities and I think that's the dream where every community can have their own little you know culture they can have their own products their own technologies that they invented or whatever and instead of trying to have the most growth and, and building up who can make the, the, the biggest monopoly or whatever right instead everybody's fine with their niche because it's sustainable if you want their product you can buy it from that community and because you, you don't have to have um, mass production, right? You can have more sustainable consumption. Because only the, the, the things that are being bought are the things that are being made. Instead of having huge, you know, warehouses of stuff that you have to keep in stock. Instead, we would just invest in 3D printers. We, we would invest in ways to more quickly produce things on demand rather than you know beforehand so that re that already reduces a whole lot of waste reduces a whole lot of exploitation or even reason to exploit resources because if you're only printing things on demand you don't really need to have huge stockpiles of you know um, mining reserves for you know all these materials and things like that you can produce most of these things in your own town. You can handcraft them. Furthermore, the cost of living goes down. The cost of living goes down because you don't have to live far away from where you work. Therefore, once again, you don't need a car. That's a huge expense. That's already gone down. And because if you have mixed-use communities... You can have more affordable housing. You can build multifamily housing for those who can't afford a single family house. Right? And then when you can't afford one, you can build a new, you can build your own house in your own community. I think it just it just makes way more sense. <laughs> you know, to fractalize and have bottom up have a bottom-up approach to our economy. This top-down paternalistic crap is, is, is for the birds. That's just it's unsustainable. It's stupid. It's useless. It's wasteful. Inefficient. Racist. <laughs> like, it just does not work. So if we really want to live in a better world, we should think about how to encourage more self-contained communities or rather self-sustainable communities because here's the thing I think a huge problem people might have is say they might say oh if we have all these you know individualized communities and things like that then what's to stop them from being you know racist again like the old days when you had these sundown towns and, and white only places and things like that and the big reason why you would have that is free association open borders this is why open borders is so important if you can move to and from 
pretty much any place voluntarily. Sorry. I don't know why that uh, FedEx truck is so loud. <laughs> um, and they fix their wheels or whatever, axles. But um, if you can move to and from these communities of your own accord, then that greatly reduces the power of discriminatory behavior. Simple by the fact that people can move in and out freely. And because we live in the internet age, we can expose people to other people. A huge problem as to why communities were so xenophobic before is because they only ever lived in their own little box, their own little bubble, and never explored outwards, right? So any person that they've ever seen, you know, coming from elsewhere, it's a, new, it's a new thing for them, and they automatically see that as a threat or as a potential enemy. And the natural emotional instinct to that is to treat them as such, to either be um, introverted, not introverted, but like closed off, or antagonistic, or both. It's a natural instinct. I just learned. I just I knew that before, but we, I saw the data in Plutchik's um, emotion world that I talked about before, where he was looking at the physiological reactions of animals. Many different animals have this reaction to things that they do not know, to things that seem dangerous, right? And so, this is why in Africa, in ancient Africa, like before colonization, you actually see a huge amount of trade and travel and openness to other people. And even when, even when the Spanish, you know, first landed in, um, in Africa, along the Ivory Coast, you have many, many accounts of Africans being super open to them. Right? Granted, you had some of those, some of those more isolated places that were not very open. You did have those. But you also had more diverse places like Edo Empire, like people from um, current-day Benin, that were super open to these people. They let them in their community because they were used to that. Like they, they regularly traded with people around the world. So it wasn't necessarily new to them to see these people. Or rather, it was new, but they didn't respond. They responded how you would when you discover something that might be beneficial to you. With curiosity. Right? With intrigue. Rather than with reservation. Or with antagonism. Antagonist, antagonism. <laughs> and that's a big difference. So what that means is that if we want to make sure that these communities are more open to diversity, to other people, then we have to make sure that people can be exposed right, to other folks. At an early age And you can achieve that Through the internet through, Especially if you have a more healthy internet We can also achieve that Through open borders once again Through trade Through people moving in and out of these communities More regularly Whether it's tourism Or just visiting family Or you know Maybe we can even have some Some, some group of people who are Very much like digital nomads So they're, they're constantly moving around, you know, living in these places. And you can have a new, a new Bantu type of people. Like the Bantu people of, of Africa, they would uh, migrate around Africa. 
and constantly, you know, introduce people to new ideas. So we could do that same thing, but with digital nomads. We have a huge group of nomads, digital nomads, you know, working in these co-working spaces and Airbnbs or whatever you want to call them, exposing all these communities to different ways of life, different ways of thinking, all this other stuff, to keep people just open to these experiences. I think that would be a more interesting world than the one we live in, where people are just sat down in their houses, you know, never really exposed to somebody, anyone else <laughs> unless they see some random stuff on the internet or something like that. Like, we can we can have a, a much richer society. So that's uh, more or less what I, what I shared on the newsletter. Um, I didn't go to that end because I, I was just now thinking through it. But, um, Definitely that digital, that digital virtual um, mix, mixing of environments. Have a virtual environment. Have a local tech organizations. That's what I put in newsletter. And I said, oh gosh, I just flew right into my mouth. That was, I guess that's a sign for me to shut up. <laughs> I'm repeating myself. But um, yeah, that's that's it. That's what I was talking about in my newsletter and. Um, this next one is going to be talking about everything else I've been going over. Um, the emotional stuff, emotional wheels. Um, but I've been thinking about Jordan Peterson and IQ and his interview with SB Coffin, which I talked about here before. I'm going to talk about um, why we should, you know, study more diverse thoughts of, uh, or ways of measuring intelligence. Seeing as, once again, many African um, peoples had some sort of fractal understanding of the world in which we greatly, greatly miss today. Which m many people understand is important. Like, you hear that term fractalization. We, hear, we see this term kind of being floating around every now and then. But it's not really as deeply ingrained in our society as it, as it was in African societies. So something seems to be missing there. Um... What else? I think that that's probably it. Updates on my projects. And now uh, this week, I'm going to be talking to some folks that reached out to me from LinkedIn last week from that post I, I was talking about. So, excited about that. And um, I hope I get into this black, black designer thing, the Black Ignite talk. It's supposed to be contacting the people who we're going to be talking this week. So, really, really hope I get in there. Um, that might be it. This week, I also want to kind of reprioritize my my uh, my mission. I suppose I do think working on a whole bunch of projects works for me very well. Um, counterintuitively however I had this listen to this great podcast by uh, Hal Elrod Hal Elrod on um, shoot I forgot what his podcast is called I forgot what it's called but <laughs> he was talking about how um, in order to really accomplish everything you want to accomplish you have to have one mission you focus on one mission which is basically a goal but a more actionable Thing, right, because the goals you can always set them, and they give you a little bit of you know excitement just for setting the goal, and so you kind of get in this game 
of constantly setting new goals, not really accomplishing them, and then setting another one, right? Just re redoing the cycle. But with missions, it's like this is your thing that you need to accomplish, right? And if you don't accomplish that, you clearly failed. You can't just restart the mission, right? It's not, it's not a game in that end. Like, even if you create a new mission, then in your mind, you, you have this feeling like, oh, man, I didn't even, I didn't even do the last mission, right? Um, maybe just a pedant, a, bit, a, pedant, ped, ah, a pedantic thing. But um, if, it does feel different for some reason. So he was talking about, you know, setting your mission um, and setting up a bunch of contextual things to help you with that mission. Things like, you know, of course, getting an accountability partner, but also kind of aligning your entire life around that mission. Right. So when you, for instance, if your mission is to like his example was to, you know, be the best uh, for his family. Right. The best dad and, and, and uh, husband, things like that. And so before he thought that meant, you know, um, getting, doing, doing well at work and all this other stuff. So he would constantly um, overwork himself and things like that, thinking that he's doing this for his family. That's, that's crazy because that's what you hear a lot of, you know, kind of men, especially feel and think is that, oh, I'm doing this for my family. I'm doing this for my family. Um, they should be grateful or whatever, right? Even though you're not there for them on a daily basis, you think, hey, I'm, I'm just doing this for my family, right? But that's not what they see, right? And it's, it's not even what you see. Because what you see, and he pointed this out, is that whenever he had a new meeting or something like that, he would prioritize that over, you know, a game that he would go, like a ki one of his kids' games or, you know, reading to his kid at night because he had to, you know, wake up early in the morning for a new meeting or whatever, right? But after he, <laughs> he uh, had cancer, right, they told him he was going to die in a few months and all this other stuff, and he, he realized, like, oh, gosh, <laughs> I'm not going to remember, nor are they going to remember, you know, all those meetings and all that, you know, extra money I got in, like, that, that, at the end of the day, what's going to matter is the time he actually spent with his family, right, the meaningful time he spent with his family. Um, luckily, he was able to overcome that cancer, and he didn't die. <laughs> um, that was way, like, in 2005 or so, but that really changed his entire outlook. And so what he did was begin to actually schedule in time for his family. So before he went to work, schedule in, like, 30 minutes of playtime with his son, you know, schedule in... Um, going to the game instead of going to the meeting. Even when people say, hey, you had this important meeting, important networking thing you want to go to, we need you there. He's like, nah, I had to have an engagement with my family, right? And so that to him finally put, put his power, he, he finally put his priorities, right? Where his, his um, he put his external priorities where his internal ones were. Right, and I talked about this before a little bit with time boxing things like that. But the way in which you schedule your time, the way in which you actually spend your time, says a lot more about what you prioritize than what you just claim that you prioritize. Right? You can say all day, "Oh, I, I love my family. It's, it's all for the family and stuff like that." But if you're not spending time for them, right? If you're not um, prioritizing things for them, then do you really care? I'm not, not going to say do you really care, but is that really a priority for you? And if it's not, that's okay too. But you have to admit it, right? You can't just 
say, oh, this is all for my family and get prioritized mostly going to work or anything like that. If you want to go to work and you think that's your priority, then make that your actual priority. Live with that. Be able to live with that responsibility, with that priority, you know, that idea. So likewise for me, I have a lot of goals and a lot of ideas of where I want to go in life. But I do want to be much better at prioritizing these different things. Another thing he pointed out is that when you do prioritize your mission, right, and when you align your entire life to that mission, you can more quickly accomplish all of your goals. Like he set out like five, six, seven crazy goals, right? Doubling his income, um, beating cancer, uh, you know, becoming a great public speaker, all this other stuff, right? In that same year. And he was able to accomplish all of that by aligning his mission with his priorities, with his life, such that, and the reason why that works in his, you know, theory is that when you prioritize your entire, you know, life to align with your mission and all that, and when you align it, you kind of get into a state of flow more easily. Right, because you're not fighting with yourself if you should do if you, if you should do this or if you should do that. You know what you need to do. You know what you have to do, and so you, you you go do that. And when you're working kind of in your alignment with yourself, you can make decisions more quickly. You can make better decisions. You can find more opportunities that allows these different things, right, to connect to each other. And so interesting because that's what you see with a lot of you know psychological studies into um, positive, into optimism versus uh, versus pessimism, things like that. People who are optimistic can actually see more opportunities available to them than people who are pessimistic. And I think this might be true with like aligning your mission. When you align your life with your mission or your your priorities with your mission, your goal, your central goal, then you can see more opportunities as to how you can connect these different things together. So uh, I'm going to do more of that and uh, see where it goes. So as always, thanks for watching. I mean, <laughs> thanks for listening. Have a great day. See you. Bye-bye.